Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. This is a podcast focusing on the connections between anime and Canadian media. And on this episode, we're going to be focusing on another show that has had a unique cultural impact in Canada, and that is uh, a cop show, Ghost in the Shell <laughs> Standalone Complex. And uh, joining me for this episode is, uh, the first time in quite a while, uh, Randy Forbister. Uh, Randy usually joins me for our... Um, our theatrical anime overviews, which uh, we, we kind of used to do every year. But uh, yeah. that's been gotten, there hasn't been quite as much to talk about in that area lately. Or it's, uh, you know, there's been a few, a few obstacles to, uh, to talking about that like we usually do. Just one or two. Uh, well, yeah, Ronnie, what have you been up to? This year uh, was, pretty, was pretty good to me. Um, I ended up finally getting a PC. So basically all I've been doing when I was at home is playing uh, Final Fantasy XIV. That was the big thing I was up to this year, uh, since I really couldn't do much else. How how did you do finding a reasonable price on a video card? uh, I ended up getting a pre-built. So it was about $1,800 on Newegg, and I got, like, the most recent graphic card, like, the 3060. And so, like... In that respect, it wasn't too bad. Yeah, prob- um, it, yeah, it's probably the best way to sort of do that in an affordable manner right now. Uh, with, I think With so. all the crypto bullshit going on. Uh, I managed yep. to get a PC built just before <laughs> all that really started. So I'm uh, I'm kind of lucky. But uh, yeah, any anything you can do to, to keep the cost down at this point is, is generally worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in terms of um, corona-based roadblocks happening, you also... Uh, uh, you're, you're still running Icon uh, in uh, in Winnipeg, right? Yeah, uh, theoretically. Theoretically, and yeah, we've we've had we've had uh, we canceled our main event twice, and we've done a few online events here and there. Um, but hopefully, we're going back in the summer. Uh, that's that's the hope right now. Yeah. Um, based on how things have the pattern of the past few years, I think probably we'll end up doing a summer thing, but. Uh, I can't say for sure. Fingers crossed. We... Fingers crossed. Yeah. Icon's definitely on my list of cons to visit at some point, uh, which is very long and now <laughs> long delayed. Uh, but yeah. someday, someday. Yeah, it's uh, a good time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, w- I originally wasn't planning on doing an episode on Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, but with uh, Adult Swim Canada recently running uh, Blade Runner Black Lotus, um, it also remind it, it made me realize that, you know, there was another cyberpunk anime directed by Kenji Kamiyama that aired at midnight uh, a, almost a decade ago. And uh, that also reminded me, hey, it probably actually is one of the most notable anime to run on YTV because it actually has a reputation outside of Canada, uh, even though it's something that ran in, in other Anglo territories. Because I, whenever I read anything about... Uh, you know, the episodes of Standalone Complex and whenever they read something about Jungle Cruise, it still <laughs> seems to be labeled as the episode that was banned in Canada. Yeah. Um, that's that, that that label still follows um, that episode and the show to this day. And it, that's not exactly true, but, uh, you know, based on that reputation and the fact that, you know, Standalone Complex does kind of stand out a little bit uh, among other shows that aired on YTV, we haven't really... T- talked much about bionics on this show in the last couple of years i thought it would be worth to going back and taking another look at uh, at standalone complex obviously there's a lot to say about it and we could easily go down a, a rabbit hole and make an episode that's even longer than the candy candy episode was but i, th- I think we can 
you know, we'll try to keep it a little more focused on the, the Canadian context, but there's no shortage of, um, of good deep dives you can find, um, on this show. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, I, I guess kind of want to look at this specific context for standalone complex again. And I mean, needless to say, I, I still, I rewatched the show and I'd still say of all the shows on Bionics, this is probably one of the best, or at least probably a toss up between this and, and Full Metal Alchemist or Eureka 7, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, rewatching it, there were a lot of, I, I was kind of shocked about how dated it all kind of felt, uh, just in like, from like a modern perspective, just the, the way that it went about lots of the technology aspects and lots of the theorizing about where technology is going to go. I found it really interesting from a 2021 perspective, how those things have kind of, how perspective has kind of shifted around those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it, it's a super, it's super well done. Like uh, apart from like a few little animation, uh, a few like uh, a bit of stiff animation, I think it could have come out today, and there there wouldn't be much of no one would blink an eye. Yeah, the sh- the show came out in two thousand two. It easily looks better than any other digital production that was coming out at that time, mm-hmm. uh, even when you account for the CGI integration and stuff like that. And I, if I'm not mistaken, it was I believe it was the first television anime that was produced in high definition as well. Um, yeah, or as dig- digital I- uh, television animation. Or anime. Mm-hmm. I remember there was there, there was a big there's a big deal with the DVD releases at the time when they were coming out. Yeah. So if you yeah. if you see an HD version of a Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, and uh, you, you may surprise you, there are ways you can do it, but they're not uh, as obvious as you might think. Uh, but yeah, it's not an upscale. This is this was produced in HD. It has a lot of the it has a lot of the, like the earth tones and muted colors that. Uh, kind of aesthetics that you'll find of a lot of shows from that time, but I, it still looks way better than a lot of, you know, I, I guess contemporaries you'd think it would be like Witch Hunter Robin or, or Wolf's Reign. Um, it, it definitely looks better than the the other show, other shows that you draw direct parallels to from yeah, around the 2002-2003 era. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm probably going to make this age this episode age like milk by bringing this up. But Randy, have you had a chance to check out any of Blade Runner Black Lotus on Adult yeah. Swim Canada? You know, I really haven't. Yeah. Uh, just my, my my time has been focused elsewhere, especially uh, it came out towards the end of uh, the calendar year, so my work got pretty busy. Yeah. yeah. And just, just, you know, everything piling up one after another. Yeah. It's interesting uh, watching that show and then going back and watching the show that, you know, a few of the same creatives worked on um, 15 years ago. And or more than almost 20 years ago at this no 20 years ago at this point and seeing it's you know it's I, I, it's not bad and I don't want to uh, I want to try and be nice because of course it's the first non kids anime to run on a chorus network in a decade so you, you know I want to I do want to encourage people to to embrace it and maybe we'll see more but yeah it's not bad but it's it it's pretty mediocre I feel like. Uh, if you're comparing these two shows where you can draw a lot of parallels, we've it's it's kind of a step back. It's it's slow. It is lacking in interesting ideas, and it seems like the most uh, the the most the, the biggest thing it's accomplished is just being able to stay consistent with the black the Blade Runner movies. But it doesn't um, 
it, it doesn't have a lot of interesting ideas that it brings into the uh, the mix. And also the fact that it's CGI and the environments look good. Um, the faces, not so much. The hair, the hair is is the kicker there. They uh, can't do hair. I think uh, Aramaki and Kenji Kamiyama, they uh, they need to be put in CGI jail until they can figure hair out. It yeah, looks so bad. And I found it I found it jarring to go back and watch Standalone Complex with that show fresh in my mind. Because um, even even at its worst, Standalone Complex is so much richer, so much more interesting and engaging than, um, you know, something that's more contemporary and coming out now. And um, that that same creative team also did the more recent uh, Standalone Complex sequel, uh, Standalone Complex 2049, which is on Netflix, yeah. which is done in a similar uh, CGI style. And I I haven't really watched that, but oh boy, is that... Um, that is some it, it is some stills of looking animation in that show. It does it does not look good. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen the clip that kind of got memed around with the naked guy. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm I'm okay, I'm I'm good with that. Yeah. So I, I guess I imagine anyone listening to this uh, has at least some passing familiarity with Ghost in the Shell or or Standalone Complex. But I'll just read the Wikipedia summary because it's a waste of time to write this stuff myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex is of course uh, adapted from the manga by Masamune Shiro um, takes place in the year 2030, where many people have become cyborgs with prosthetic bodies, primarily set in the fictional city, Japanese city of Nihama. The series follows the members of Public Security Section 9, a special operations tax, task force made up of former military officers and police detectives. And this first season of Standalone Complex, which is the only season that aired on YTV, uh, focuses on the Laughing Man incident, wherein a hacktivist ultimately reveals to the major that he had discovered that several micro-machine manufacturing corporations working with the Japanese government suppressed information on an inexpensive cure to a debilitating disease in order to profit from the more expensive treatment. Following this, he abducted one of the owners of the company and attempted to force him to reveal the truth on live television, resulting in the hacker live hacking everyone's vision and cameras at the event to cover his face with a stylized laughing face logo that became synonymous with his image. His popularity spawned several genuine imitators, resulting in the series' titular standalone complex. After an investigation by the authorities causes him to resurface to the present, Section 9 discovers these companies and several Japanese politicians, later using the Laughing Man's image to garner public support and profit, and they begin a campaign to disseminate the truth. So this uh, this summary is, of course, just focusing on the uh, quote-unquote complex episodes in the series, and mm-hmm. the, thing, uh, the thing that Ghost in the Shell made an oddly big deal about is the fact that it has uh, show episodes that specifically focus on a continuing storyline and standalone episodes that um, are, for the most part, completely self-contained, although they do uh, do a lot of legwork in, in world building for um, sort of the, the broader story that actually spans across uh, all of the seasons, including the yeah. like, OVAs and spinoffs as well. So you're not... Uh, it, 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 it does create quite a bit of tapestry, um between all that, um, so Randy, uh, for Ghost of the Shell standalone complex, how did you first encounter it? Did you see it on TV, or were you following the fan subs or the, the DVD releases? Uh, my experience with the fan sub was just uh, going back to the memes again. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, when when it first when it was first being fan subbed, there was um, a comparison image that came out uh, about kidnapping about uh i think it came, comes from episode four or five of the series and they're talking about 
um, mass, the mass naked child events. events. And yeah, and the fan one of the fan subs calls them mass naked child events. Yeah, uh, that was the first that ever I ever heard of Soundland Complex coming out. Uh, then I then I heard about it from the magazines, from like the Anime Insiders, and finally when it first came on TV, that's when I started watching it for the first time. Yeah, um, yeah. When I I actually fa- you know stumbled upon the show, I think in a similar fashion to uh, to the way you did. Um, but one of the most notable things, apart from the TV broadcast of Standalone Complex, is that the DVD releases of the series. Um, you could actually buy them in stores. You could find yeah. them in the new release section on the day they were supposed to come out. And I think, you know, looking back 20 years, maybe there's not the same kind of appreciation for this kind of thing, or people don't remember what it was like, or people have never experienced, um, you know, the uh, the uh, an era where it was uh, important to be able to get home video releases. But this was a huge deal. And this was at a time when, Mon- when Bandai Entertainment titles, and Bandai was for the most part, handling uh most of the a lot of the production uh mm-hmm. for the, the localized version of standalone complex you couldn't get their dvds anywhere they were not in any mainstream store they did not have a distributor uh, you couldn't even get them on amazon.ca they were just you you had to you had to import them it was your only option and there were fewer options to import titles like that back then than there are now so to actually reliably find these individual DVD releases coming out in the new release section at Future Shop or Best Buy. Uh, every uh, on the release date, it was it was big, and, and they were like twenty two bucks each. They were they were at an actual appropriate price when a lot of standalone DVDs were you know inflated to about forty five dollars, depending on which distributor was releasing them. So of course I uh, I, I snapped them up as soon as they became available every week. Uh, or they didn't come out every week on their release dates. I kept close track of them, made sure to pick them up. That is how I first watched the show. And, and the reason that they were easy to get is because even though Bandai entertainment was handling the production manga entertainment was handling the distribution because there were a lot of hands in this show, Uh, lots of money coming from different sources because it was a, a big deal, especially for distribution in the West. And the thing that manga entertainment they were one of the only anime distributors at that time that their stuff was everywhere. You could find, you could find their stuff in every store because their, you know, their, their production quality was not very good on their titles. And they often (laughs) had, uh, uh, a lot of their, their content also was not good, but you could find it everywhere because they had, um, I, I think at that time they were owned by anchor Bay. And even before that, they were working with, um, related companies, who had strong distribution channels and could get the stuff out there at a reasonable price. Bandai Entertainment did not have that. So you, it had a big leg up in that department. And, um, and, and that was really, uh, that, that was really valuable. I was going to, I was going to bring us up uh, a little bit more into the discussion, but yeah, uh, I first, I, besides watching it on TV first, I started picking up the DVDs uh, because Every Boxing Day, uh, HMV would have a sale, and I would go specifically to look for what anime DVDs were on sale, and it was always Ghost in the Shell DVDs for about $5 each. So I picked up as much as I could all the time. Uh, I ended up getting, I think I ended up getting like volumes 4, 5, and 6 of uh, the first season, and volumes 1, 2, and 3 of the second season. That's all I ever managed to get. Um but I, I ended up watching those DVDs a lot. 
I guess Ghost in the Shell was such a popular series at the time that they actually released, translated and released the first official logbook. Yeah, that which, was... Which is, yeah. And you could find which it everywhere. A, it was so weird. Yeah, yeah. So it's a guidebook that covers the first uh, 18 episodes of the series. It has write-ups for the characters, like uh, what, like the episodes where they show development in it characters episodes where they show development through their actions uh and then has like a write-up for every episode from 1 to 18 has some preliminary sketches and includes also a dvd with a bunch of special features behind the scene features and this thing i ended up getting for like ten dollars and it's still one of my prized possessions i ended up actually getting it signed by uh mary mcglynn and richard eckbar yeah when they were at Oticon Vegas. Impressive. So I, I didn't even realize that till I actually like went out to go pull it out. And I, I, I opened it up and started looking through and I was like, oh yeah, this is signed. I actually got this book signed. <laughs> nice surprise. It's, I, I, yeah. I, it's mind blowing to think that like something like that would get released uh, at any point in the past. Oh, yeah. And much less something you could find in most stores, something like that. It, it, it's crazy. And, and at the same time, uh, most distributors just couldn't even get their stuff into Canadian stores at all. Uh, she yeah. just, what a mess everything was at that time. Uh, and those those um, extra special features they released were cool. Uh, but the <clears throat> DVDs themselves also uh, have great special features. Every one had at least one interview with a key staff member or voice actor who worked on the show. And they were taking from, those were taken from the Japanese DVDs, and they mm -hmm. get really in depth into into the production and how long it took and how they approached things uh, more so than I've seen on a lot of special features for, for other anime. And there's also in one of the interviews and, and I, I rewatched a lot of this stuff now, but there was one thing I will never forget. And that was the fact that Kenji Kamiyama forced the writers to watch Armageddon uh, when they were working on standalone complex uh, saying that it's a, you know, it's a dumb movie, but it makes people feel emotional. So you need to hone that into, uh, into these episodes that you're writing. And it's just a reminder that so much of anime is just, uh, you know, mediocre American cinema run through a funhouse mirror and then kind of dressed <laughs> up again. I was, uh, I, I was, I was shocked when I learned that. I've never forgotten that. But yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, those are, uh, I mean, those are great, great interviews. If you have those DVDs, I encourage you to go to go watch that stuff. Uh, and those DVDs, I, you can still find them. Um, they're a little more expensive now, but they're not like crazy priced. I think you can get each, each of those DVD seasons for like. 50 to 75 dollars or something uh there are yeah. the, the blu-rays releases that anchor bay uh or sorry stars or uh lionsgate or i think it was whoever owns them now um they they put those out a few years ago do not buy those those are absolute garbage uh if you did buy them just throw them in the garbage <laughs> throw uh -huh. them in the trash they are not even worth keeping uh there's so many technical problems with them it's uh kind of shocking actually <laughs> That's that's so interesting because just they put so much care into it. Yeah. In the first release, like they actually had separate DVD releases. They had one DVD release that was like the standard edition, and they had a second DVD release that was like a special edition that, which is the only place you can get the the 5.1 Dolby Mix. Yeah. If I recall correctly, and they ended up doing that for every single volume of the show, and to go from from like this is a huge huge release to Here's this bare bones. We barely put any effort into it. Uh, like almost like a shovelware. 
is is really interesting. Yeah, well, it just it just goes to show what happens after a, after a couple of major um, studio acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, things just fall on the wayside, and yeah, it's kind of sad knowing we're probably never going to get another actual decent Blu-ray release of it. Uh, but we'll we'll get into the availability of the show a little bit at the at the end. So I do. I mainly want to focus on the the context of YTV uh, and their broadcast of the show. But let's. Uh, we will take a quick step back and just look at the background of uh, where Standalone Complex came from and how it's connected to previous versions of Ghost in the Shell. The original manga, which in Japan is has always been under the title Kokaku Kidotai, which means Mobile Armored Riot Police. And that has been the that has always been the title that this franchise goes under. The the complex kanji compound you see um, always attached to this series. It does not say Ghost in the Shell. It says Kokako Kidotai, and that's because in Japan, at least especially with the original manga, on a commercial level, this was sold as a police manga set in the future. That's that's the genre that it is theoretically supposed to fall under, uh, and it was. Uh, that's how it was published across 11 chapters between 1989 to 1991 in Weekly Young Magazine uh, from Kodansha. But, of course, it wasn't actually published weekly because they're uh, fairly long chapters uh, and just, you know, not very many of them. The manga is, of course, as I mentioned earlier, by um, Masamune Shiro. Uh, that is the pen name of Masanori Oda. This guy... I've read a lot about how he's considered to be reclusive. I even see him described as the J.D. Salinger uh, of Japan. But I think we actually know more about him than we know about a lot of mangaka. We know that, uh, for the most part, I think he still lives in Hyogo, Japan. He uh, lost his house in the 1995 Kobe earthquake. He used to be a high school teacher. Uh, He's been at conventions. There's photos of him circulating around the internet yeah i think we know a lot about this guy compared to to a lot of mangaka out there i mean c- compare that to uh gotoge uh, koyoharo uh who is the uh the demon slayer mangaka who we know literally nothing about apart from uh their birth date uh but i i don't know i, I think this perception that that he's reclusive kind of came from earlier western perspectives when we didn't have access to as much manga or didn't know as much about manga authors and just weren't used to this idea of most of them kind of being anonymous yeah um, but uh i i think one of the worst things that can happen to you is to become famous so <laughs> i'm not surprised that lots of mangaka want to keep it hidden yeah uh like i, I am not surprised in any case that the, that the demon slayer slayer mangaka is choosing to say anonymous yeah because, and it's crazy uh, I, 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 yeah I couldn't. I couldn't imagine what your life would be like if you have written the most popular manga in years in Japan. Yeah, and you know, it's it best best selling the source material for like the best highest grossing film in in the history in history of Japan. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's nuts. Uh, but this, this yeah. person we know nothing about them. So I think that this uh, this idea that Masamune Shiro is uh, is is a recluse is a little a little overstated. But mm-hmm. um, you know, I. I, I could be a little off with that. But uh, Shiro had previously done two other manga, Black Magic and Appleseed, which both had anime adaptations. And notably, uh, with the Black Magic one, uh, Shiro ha- was uh, actually hands-on with that. He was a co-director of that, and he handled a lot of the um, the, the visual aspect of, of its production. And unsurprisingly, he would actually wind up being quite, um, quite hands-on with the production of the first season of Standalone Complex as well. Uh, probably a big reason why uh, that TV series is um, 
follows the manga structurally in a, in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um, and then, um, yeah, after the Ghost in the Shell manga, he also did a so he, he did a sort of sequel called Man Machine Interface. I have not read Man Machine Interface. I hear it is very um, difficult to understand <laughs> and and kind of out there. And pretty much everything he's done in the last 15 years since then has been outright porn. I don't think he's done anything that's not explicitly pornographic. Yeah. Um, since he did that comic. I, I'm actually looking at the uh, ANN uh, encyclopedia article for him yeah. right now. And it says, under skills and abilities, draws artwork for adult calendars. And I'm like, yeah, I've definitely seen a few of those. That's where he's taken his work. And I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine with that. That's fine. No, oh, hey, if it gets you money, it gets you money. I think, he's a, I think he's one of those artists who can pretty much do whatever he wants at this point. Um, mm-hmm. This manga served as the basis for uh, the 1995 film uh, Ghost in the Shell, which was released... Uh, the film was funded by Kodansha and produced by Production IG, and uh, they uh, they basically presented this um, project to Mamoru Oshii uh, to direct. And if you're not familiar with Mamoru Oshii, got started mainly with comedy uh, with Urusei Yatsura. Uh, but as time mm-hmm. went on, he evolved into more, uh, I guess uh, you could say, navel gazing or, or cerebral works. You you see that evolution happening if you if you watch Pat Labor. Uh, starting with the OVAs and then eventually going up to the the second film, which is very much a precursor to the type of approach you'd see with that 1995 Ghost in the Shell film, uh, which is a it's quite different from the manga. Of course, it uh, it focuses entirely on sort of presenting the sci-fi elements, and in the original manga, Shiro would have these very extensive liner notes everywhere. Uh, explaining the the sci-fi concepts that are being presented in the series. The film version takes a very visual approach to establishing this, and I think that's both its strongest and weakest aspect, because it does it very well, but that's kind of all it does. It uh, it communicates this, these ideas in a very uh, visually engaging way, but I don't think it really makes it compelling. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on, on the film, Randy. I think it's... um. It's an interesting uh, work, but I think I, I I find it a little dull personally. Uh, the I, the first time I actually saw it was when it came back. Like speaking of me being the theater guy, yeah. Um, first time I saw it was when it was in theaters about five or six years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I I kind of dozed off during it because uh, yeah. I was I was coming to it right after watching Akira, uh, which is a very high energy, like spectacle of a movie and then to go into a little more heady soft uh like introspective movie kind of put me to sleep a little uh and i ended up watching um probably the first half of it before i went to bed last night actually taking a break from watching Salon complex to go watch more more ghost on the shelf before i went to bed uh and i think there's lots of really good ideas in it um the visuals are are amazing honestly i think i think that that's the big thing is uh the way the it, the visuals and the score really sell that movie. they do yeah and more than that, anything else yeah kenji Kawai did the score in the film he, i think he does a, a great job and obviously the music is very different with yoko kano in mm-hmm. um in the series but uh you know, they, they, uh, it's executed in a way so that the, uh, you know, still, it can still send a chill down your spine at the right point. I find, I find the, the theme songs in the, in the TV series kind of 
um, are able to emulate that quite well. Um, the yeah. the film, I do, yeah, I, I I love how its version of um, of Nihama more resembles Hong Kong, or at least the the parts they focus on and the colors pop a little more it, it does a really good job of communicating things visually but you know it, it still it drains all of the humor out of the original manga and i i think that was kind of a mistake it's also uh you know it, obviously the uh, sexuality is an aspect of it but it kind of takes the sexiness out which you know your mileage may vary on that so you can um it accomplishes a lot but i think uh it kind of leaves a lot to be desired and i think uh the tv series kind of uh fill, manages to fill that void a little more um nonetheless i think the film is usually regarded as kind of a failure in japan i don't know if it did that badly but it definitely has more notoriety in the west it actually is technically a uk japanese co-production because it was made with a, a very large investment from uh, the UK-based manga entertainment. Uh, the original manga entertainment is based in the UK, not the, the US one was a spin-off. Um, it's all owned by Lionsgate now. Uh, that's yeah. to, to answer my uh, confused statement earlier. Um, and it was uh, it sold over a million copies on VHS. I believe it was the overall top-selling anime film on that format in the West. Or at least in the United States. I, um, and I'm, I'm, that's what it says on Production IG's website. I don't know how that's measured exactly, but it is a, it was a, a very large success on VHS for an anime film. I, I am not surprised by that at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we can go, I think we can blame that on the, the, the manga entertainment of it all because they just got everything in every store. Yeah. Uh, so it's like it's like uh, Ghost in the Shell, Perfect Blue. Those were like the two ones that like you saw everywhere. Yeah. Like you you, exactly. you couldn't go to a to a DVD or a media store without seeing them. And like it's just one of those situations where just putting it in front of your face, people are going to to be intrigued and end up like buying it or renting it. So um, I, it's not a surprise at all that like in the early days of anime fandom and being able to buy official products that Ghost in the Shell was going to be one of those ones that like stuck out like because just just the the base image that's always on the manga uh, trailers was Motoko diving out of the window and going invisible and that's probably the most most iconic shot of the whole Ghost in the Shell franchise I like standalone complex even copies that yeah, you, you yeah. see it referenced in other anime, which, mm-hmm. you know, ki- kind of um, defeats the idea that the film was not popular or is not well regarded in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and its theatrical release, even, even if it wasn't as successful, it was, you know, it got a lot of attention among critics. I think one of the first actual analyses of anime, or rather close look at anime that I've ever, that I saw, uh, Siskel and Ebert's review of it in, in uh, when it was released in 1995 or 1996, which, oh. you know, around that same time that Sailor Moon was first airing and we were seeing the anti-gravity room and kind of having this more explicit discussion was going on about anime. And I remember that's how I first learned about Ghost in the Shell was um, was seeing that review. Um, and of course, that, you know, that helped lead to a very successful home video release. Mm-hmm. Uh, so moving forward with the continuation of this franchise with a no-brainer 
And it's also not surprising that the Western market would be a focus and a big financial contributor to it as well. Um, even though that the it, was, it took a few years, but Production IG, along with a number of partners, including Bandai Visual and Bandai Entertainment in the West, uh, Dentsu, uh, NT or Nippon Television Network, and Tokuma Shoten, interestingly, rather than the manga's original publisher Kodansha, uh, was a sponsor of it as well. And Victor Entertainment, uh, Manga Entertainment in the UK, Anchor Bay in the West, and also Adult Swim put money into this series while it was still in production. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think they were a, a later contributor, but that did lead to them basically permanently getting the broadcast and streaming rights. Uh, of course, later on, we're going to go into availability of the, of the show, but in the United States, it is still on the Adult Swim website. Both seasons are streaming. Uh, they're, they're pretty much there permanently, uh, as far as I can tell. I think they have some if not perpetual rights or uh, rights in per- perpetuity, then a very, uh, a very, a very strong um, grasp on those rights right now. Um, even if they're not exclusive. Uh, so mm-hmm. a lot of parties putting money into it and Mamoru Oshii was not directly involved in the first season, but it didn't stray very far from his creative influence because the director mm-hmm. was Kenji Kamiyama uh, so he is from sort of Mamoru Oshii's creative pod in production IG. He was unit director on Gene Uh He wrote the screenplay for Blood the Last Vampire. He had uh, a lot of involvement in the Pat Labor franchise, and he also directed the Mini Pato uh, Pat Labor shorts uh, that came out around the same time as, um, as Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. So... Uh, he was, uh, he directed the series, he did the series composition, the script, the storyboard, and he was the chief writer. And although he was the chief writer, I think a lot of unique ideas or engaging ideas in the series actually came from, uh, one of the main writers who was Daisato. Uh, Daisato actually started with Cowboy Bebop. He wrote a number of key episodes. Jamming with Everett and Brain Scratch. And the Brain Scratch episode, which was the, uh, the VR episode in Cowboy Bebop, that apparently uh, landed him the job on um, on this show, and if you've had any you know exposure to anime on television in the last twenty years, you've definitely seen work from Daisato. He um, he worked on on this show on Cowboy Bebop, Wolf's Reign, basically the main writer behind uh, Eureka Seven. And, uh, Eden and, of the East. With with Kenji Kamiyama. Yeah, Kenji Kamiyama would go on. He would work on Eden of the East, uh, which was Kenji Kamiyama's one of his next big projects. He all, Kenji Kamiyama also did Morabito. Mm-hmm. Eden of the East is uh, that's a show that I was kind of disappointed with. I got to say, it's got some interesting ideas, but did not go in the direction I expected yeah. it to at yeah. all. Um, uh, oh, Kenji Kamiyama. He also directed that movie Napping Princess, which um, mm-hmm. I I liked it. <laughs> a lot of people didn't seem to like that one, but I. I thought I thought it was a a pretty pretty good family movie. I, would, I didn't mm-hmm. expect that from him, but uh, yeah, I I think you should. I I like to see him do more films like that. I think he did a good job. I, I'd certainly like to see him do more stuff like that and, and less of the CGI stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> oh, and, and also sorry, while we go on this uh, tangent of stuff that he's done since, he also directed one of the segments in uh, Star Wars Visions, uh, the anime that's on oh, Disney yeah. Plus right now. He directed the Ninth Jedi. Um, I have not watched any of those, so. Um, but uh, people seem I, to like yeah, it. Yeah, I've only I've only seen the trigger one. Yeah, that's all I watched so far. Yeah, 
and uh, and Dai Sato, he most recently did the script for Super Crooks um, on Netflix. All I know about Super Crooks is that it has a, has a, a scene where two characters debate the differences between Power Rangers and Super Sentai. And I'm that, like, I should I should watch that. Yeah, well, it's it's directed it's um it's based on uh, a comic by Mark Miller. Um, mm-hmm. and I you know I was you know it seems interesting, but you may have sold me on checking it out because I uh, I am interested in watching any show that would explore. Uh, those important yeah. differences in depth yeah. to any degree. Uh, and <laughs> uh, there were a number of other people who worked on the show. I, I think that one of the most important to highlight, though, is Yoko Kano, who did the mm-hmm. uh, highly eclectic and memorable soundtrack uh, on this series. Um, I mean, we could talk about this a little bit more on um, on how the show's held up, but uh, very, very great soundtrack. I, I know that a lot of the tracks in it have been subject to criticism because... Uh, of plagiarism accusations this happens a lot in anime i need to, i need to emphasize yeah. it's not a yoko kano specific thing it's just people are under like tight deadlines and and they do lift music a lot and there's some yeah. very blatant lifts that happen in this show but it it only affects a very small number of tracks compared to the like dozens and dozens of tracks uh multiple soundtracks worth of music that that she produces for this um i think she does it's, it's amazing work and I, I think i think it's very clear that like Accusations of plagiarism. Yoko Kano takes lots of inspiration oh, yeah, from sure. music. Like, I don't, I don't. It's so easy to go to like Tarantino as a as a as like a comparison in like how Tarantino takes ideas and, sw- and makes them into his own. Like Yoko Kano kind of does the same thing, but Tarantino's just the easiest comparison off the top of my head to make. But like all all musicians do that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah and- but, yeah, and like taking like well-known musical tropes and and making them into her own style is is yeah. kind of what she does. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do a panel at conventions that looks at music that uh, is anywhere from um, influenced by or, or outright rips off uh, popular music or music by other artists. And I have to be honest, for there are a couple a couple of tracks that she did that are that are outright lifted and almost identical to the other tracks. But a lot of the stuff I had to dig through the song for like an hour to actually find the part that was similar. And in that point, it, it becomes much more questionable. It's much more subjective. So uh, I, this is something I, you see come up in like YouTube comments a lot. And I, and I think that it, I think a big reason just because Yoko Kano is so prolific. <laughs> They're just, mm-hmm. she's the only anime um, musical artist. Most, a lot of people can name. So they, they go after her a lot, but yeah, you know, that's, that's a whole topic in itself. Uh, yeah incredibly like, memorable and powerful score that she does from this. And it's taken from so, so many different types of sources. You can't even pin it down to one type of, of influence. I, I love so yeah. many tracks from this show. And, and like I said, I, those, the, all four theme songs for both seasons, it has this way of just sending chills down your spine, like right with the way that the TV cut starts. I, I really, yeah, I really forgot how much I liked lithium flower. Oh until yeah. I, until I heard it 26 times in a row. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, this song, this song is dope. This song is great. Yeah, it's uh, underrated, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had actually forgotten that Young kind of did the music until I until I was rewatching, and I was like, wow, this music is really good. Like, yeah. like it's one of those cases where I actually like really like, take a mark up for the music, and I was like, of course it's Young Kano. Like, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I was. Uh, it's cool how she takes like cues from uh, the Kenji Kawai stuff and and kind of. Puts her own spin on it. Uh, the soundtrack's fantastic. So yeah, the the series was in production for for quite a while. I can't remember exactly when it started, but I know that they spent like 
as much as two months compiling the scripts for each episode, uh, because unlike the film, which um, cut out most of the side note information and tried to communicate it visually, the series tried to integrate a lot of the info dump information into the dialogue and try to make it as smooth as possible. And it certainly is not uh, smooth. A lot of this dialogue is very, very complicated and unnatural. But it ultimately, I think it still hits a balance that works very well. Each episode, even if they're not all you know, super great episodes, uh, they, they communicate the ideas very effectively. It's, um, I, I, I don't think enough appreciation is put into how intricate the scripts are uh, for mm. these shows. Some people might dismiss it as being like dialogue heavy or too many talking heads. But a lot of consideration was put into how this was uh, how this was handled, and I, I think a lot of I, th- I think the writing may have prolonged production of this um, a bit more than even the the animation did. It was a very complicated production, and as I mentioned, Adult Swim put money into the show's production because they became a thing in 2002, right when this show was coming out in Japan. And it has an interesting broadcast in Japan. They would actually run. On Animax, um, not one episode a week, they would run two episodes back-to-back at the beginning of every month, which actually kind of, um, when you know that, it actually uh, makes the structuring of the show make a lot more sense. You'll notice that a lot of the times you'll have a low-key episode followed by a really more uh, action-packed episode, and when you understand that they were originally broadcast with two episodes back to back it it makes sense that they do it that way and pace the series the way that they did Um, yeah for sure yeah and that started in 2002 the adult swim broadcast started in the fall of 2004 and it actually debuted simultaneously with full metal alchemist adult swim again even before anime was really a big thing on that channel or a sure thing they were putting money into it That, that tells you of the uh confidence that was in this property and the interest that was in that property. Mm-hmm. And I think with that in mind, it kind of explains that a TV broadcast in Western market was probably considered to be a crucial part of the show's distribution. And uh, lucky for Bandai Entertainment, the show's launch um, very closely coincided with uh, television, a television broadcaster in Canada who was finally interested in taking anime seriously after um, quite a few years of not really having any kind of option, which was YTV. Um, So YTV picking up Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, when when that announcement was made, when the show aired, and looking back on it now, it definitely stands out um, of all the shows that aired on that station for the most part. Uh, I think the closest comparison would probably be Witch Hunter Robin, which was also... um, which was also a sort of a procedural type of series, but obviously standalone complex is much more, much more complex, much more violent, uh, quite a bit more adult. Definitely the most adult show that ran on there. So yeah, it really and, and, stuck yeah. out. Yeah, and I remember at the time when it was first announced, lots of the discussion was like, how are they going to, how are they going to put all this on TV? There's a lot of like mature themes and like. Maybe not, maybe not a lot of violence, but there's a lot of, like, there, there's a few moments where people's heads get blown off, so what's going to happen with all that? Yeah, and uh, to, put it, to put it into context, at that time, they were running Gundam Seed, from mm-hmm. um, also from Bandai Entertainment. And Gundam Seed was, 
it, you know, it's less edited than the version that ran in the United States, but there were a number of edits made to that show, um, mm. mostly for violence. Um, and in, in many ways, I think Gundam Seed was kind of their can- canary in the coal mine for how they were going to handle violence. Uh, they, yeah. they, they kept kind of testing the waters more and more as the series went on, and it was all really inconsistent. There was a lot of... Uh, there, there's clearly a lot of concern about gun violence specifically, mm-hmm. uh, because blood from a gun wound was what they usually edited. Sometimes they let it through, uh, but yeah. it was the most concern. And you have this, um, Im- and so immediately the next thing they get from Bandai is this show that has gun violence in nearly every episode. <laughs> Some of it very explicit. A gun violence, yeah. like a guy's foot getting blown off in the first three minutes of the first episode so to a degree they obviously knew what they were getting into but mm-hmm. to people who were following this it seemed like a bad choice and i, I can tell you from my perspective and i back when in the old zon in canada website uh back when that was a thing um i think the mentality that i had uh at that time and i'll admit i was probably wrong about this was that because ytv had picked this show up uh, they basically denied the possibility that another broadcaster who would, you know, be a better, f- maybe who I perceive would be a better fit for the show and who m- would be more likely to run the whole thing uncut. They're basically mm-hmm. denying the chance for them to get it. I now know that that was uh, a, a, a bullshit perspective because there was no way that Space um, or Teletoon we're going to license this series. Yeah, no. Um, I, I, I love to imagine that possibility, but they, they those stations were simply not interested in anime, and it, it was not going to happen. YTV was the best bet. If we had waited a few years, I could have seen this showing up on Razor, but we would have had to wait, like, three years for something yeah. like that to happen. Um, and at that point, it wouldn't have had nearly as big of an impact, I think, as no, not TV broadcast would have at YTV. Um, and there's a lot a lot of questions as to why YTV went for the show. Um, at that time, as I mentioned, Full Metal Alchemist aired at the same time in Adult Swim. So it seemed strange that they would go for Standalone Complex over Full Metal Alchemist, uh, which, even though, while Full Metal Alchemist is obviously very violent, it seems like a better fit and more in line with what YTV had been acquiring up to that point. Um, yeah. And the reason, of course, is that YTV had a relationship with Bandai Entertainment. They did not have a relationship with Funimation. In fact, when you when you step back and look at the whole Bionics block, it's almost entirely composed of anime that were acquired by the first two companies that YTV worked with, either from Viz or from Bandai Entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. The the only exceptions were Full Metal Alchemist and Case Closed. Uh and they they obviously went out of their way to get those later, yeah. Uh, but it, it was a, uh, you know, it, it was definitely um, a, a. Most of their acquisitions were made out of convenience more than anything. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know that's that's fine. That's just how these things work. But that is the kind of the truth behind that block. And I will say, I really wish that I could ask John Rooney uh, more about why YTV he acquired. He was head of programming. Uh, at that time, and he actually has been on this show, uh, and he was kind of alluding to this uh, a little bit, um, but and I really regret not sort of getting more into uh, more in depth with that about him, because he actually I, I haven't mentioned this on the show yet. John Rooney actually passed away 
December 2020, uh, last year, um, from complications of a stroke, which was I didn't find out about till later, and it was uh, I was really choked. It's very tragic news that that i that that i found and it's unfortunate that you know i didn't i didn't get to talk to him or uh learn more from him in 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 that time i actually had him on episode 19 of this podcast it's called the full gamut if you go to the soundcloud page i actually have it listed as a spotlight episode even though we didn't get into ghost in the shell too much i think it's one of the most interesting episodes more in-depth episodes we've we've had where we look at kind of anime on on my tv and teletoon um but i uh I, I really wish i could i could go back and talk to him more about that but unfortunately that's not an option but with a few years um of context to look back on all of this we can kind of extrapolate a lot of of why this happened on uh, how this happened and maybe maybe see that it actually wasn't that weird after all looking at just the big push they made for it in general get like even with adults women trying to get getting it on tv in the states that it's not a big surprise that they they they'd uh try to get it over here too yeah, th- there was definitely, you know, definitely a big interest in just getting it on TV no matter what. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the big things people were worried about, um, you know, apart from just the, the consistent violence and adult themes on the show, was specifically episode 10, Jungle Cruise, uh, uh-huh. which is an episode about uh, basically a uh, a rogue CIA operative who uh, worked at subjugating South American countries, um, and part of that involved skinning people alive and then making films of it something that he was continuing to do that is the basis of the episode obviously yeah. kind of a questionable thing for ytv to run and uh <laughs> they didn't wind up running it at least not the first time uh yeah and- especially like like one of one of the scenes involves like a flashback to Bato's past when he's in south america and there's a child uh who has their their skin it has been skinned uh in the shape of a t-shirt yeah. off of their body so that's one of those situations where you're like yeah i don't know if that's feasible for someone to actually run or not yeah and i mean just the general the general theme of of snuff films in the in in the episode as well uh which is kind of central to it it i mean it's definitely an episode that um that goes for shock value i will still say that it's i think it is one of the strongest standalone episodes in in this series overall for sure and that was a daisato written episode as well i think mm-hmm. it's a it's an episode that says a lot um and it was at the front of a lot of people's minds and the fact that ytv so and it's also worth emphasizing that ytv had it scheduled but then at the last minute it was removed and replaced with a repeat of the first episode so yes. they didn't really know what they were getting into until close to the time that episode aired and i you know i gotta say it's not reasonable to expect that the people responsible for doing acquisitions would watch every episode of a 26 episode series, even though this had run on TV in the States a year before, you know, you can't expect them to know every detail, especially with um, a show with lots of, again, standalone episodes like this. But, you know, it kind of suggests either that Bandai may have misrepresented the show to them, or at least maybe they should have, given them a heads up about the content of this one episode. Yeah. Or it's also possible that YTV did want to make a bold acquisition choice and it blew up in their face. And it's um, kind of kind of unfortunate that it pay, played out the way that it did. You know, it got a lot of attention um, when this was skipped. Uh, and it didn't take them long to relent because they actually, uh, on December 30th of that same year, they ran a short marathon uh, before New Year's, on dis- um, before New Year's. And mm-hmm. debuted this episode at 1.30 a.m. Uh, completely uncut. 
uh, including yeah. all violence and even nudity, was kept in. Um, and they actually did include this episode again on the regular repeats. Uh, yeah. they, even, they even aired it as early as 12 a.m., which was the show's regular time slot. Um, and I, I also that's one thing I didn't mention. This was the first anime to de- debut at midnight as opposed to the earlier hours, which yeah. kind of showed that YTD was willing to take a chance for it. It had a more severe um, disclaimer at the beginning as well, just to clearly communicate <laughs> that this was a little they different from that. the other shows. And they did indeed, there were some small edits made to the show, but for the most part it was, it was, um, yeah. it was uncut. There were no edits to violence. There were some edits to, uh, uh some very minor edits to sexuality and, and yeah. language, but for the most part did they, it was... Did they edit out, they must have edited out the fuck you in the last episode. They did, they, which is unfortunate yeah. because that, that actually had meaning to it because it's a reference to, um, Catcher in the Rye, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the fuck you carved into the, uh, into the handrail that was cut cut out that was one of the only edits they made in the second half of the series Mm. um but uh you know that's just that's just how it goes sometimes of course yeah um and you know you know overall it was probably worth having this show run on YTV because i think it has a much stronger reputation in canada because of that Mm -hmm. Uh, but again it's too bad that they didn't run the second season obviously because they hit this whole snag with this one episode Um, yeah and the second season's better yeah, in in a I, lot of I, ways. The second season, yeah. Mamoru Oshii is more hands-on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to go back and watch it again, because there's a lot that I don't remember. Because uh, I have not re-watched it as many times as I've watched this it, first season. Yeah, same. But I remember, like, lots of... I, I remember lots of the standalone episodes are, are better in the second gig. Definitely, like, yeah. Because I, I remember, like, being, being, like, being, like, a teenager and being, like, really hit by how poignant something was. So I, I wonder how that's how that would uh, hit me now. Yeah, it does. I, I, I fully intend to go go back and keep watching now that I've watched all of the first season in like three days. I'm like, oh yeah, this show's great. I'm gonna watch more of it. Yeah, I I need to go back and and rewatch second gig as well. I know the the complex episodes go in a very different direction, and you mm-hmm. you can tell that Mamoru Oshii was more what ha- was actually more directly involved with the second season because it's it chases after much bigger ideas the first yeah. season sticks with things that are much more contemporary much more that you more like the things you'd find in a procedural regular procedural yeah. but with Absolutely. some uh sci-fi concepts sprinkled in at the at the core of each episode but it's ultimately a lot more grounded in the expectations for you know modern technology in the early 2000s but the second season it goes it, it delves more into japan's relationship with war up very much in response to the Iraq war and, and refugees, all things that were, uh, have only become bigger issues since then. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, you know, it, it takes, it makes some weird narrative choices, I think, but ultimately it has, um, it has a lot of, uh, profound stuff to say. It is unfortunate that not only did YTV not go for that second season, but also no one else did it. Uh, actually, now that I think about it, it's, I'm kind of surprised that Razor didn't go for that. It uh, actually seemed like kind of an obvious choice, but I guess they were kind of uh, screwed over by that Bell acquisition. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of cut them short of what they, they maybe could have done. And the other thing is that also if um, if YTV didn't hit the snag with uh, the Jungle Cruise issue, you know, maybe they could have been bolder in the acquisitions that they made. Maybe we could have seen stuff like Bebop or, or Ava air in that midnight mm-hmm. slot later on, but... Um, or Blood Plus, or uh, shows that were a little less safe. 
Yeah. But, uh, unfortunately, we never got to <laughs> to see that possibility. Really no, I, I think this was like the the edgiest, like the the most edgy that they ever ended up being. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh a lot of a lot of could have been there, but you know that's just uh the reality of of how this stuff plays out a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But I'm uh, I'm I'm glad we got what we did <laughs> in that case. Um, and and you know what that that said, it was successful. Um, this show mm-hmm. had almost three full runs. Uh, its last broadcast was March second, two thousand seven. Uh, at it was still chugging along at one thirty a.m. at that point, and I think wow. it probably just left because they they lost the rights at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it had a it had a good run, uh, better than a lot of the other anime on that block did. Notably, this this was one of the big things I latched onto on my old blog, for better or worse, mm-hmm. and I was really engaged with it. I, I remember when it debuted, I actually um uh, I had I was staying at my grandparents' place and I I um kept the TV on really really low, stayed up late just to see how the broadcast went, if they edited anything. I what I'm just struck with is the memory that like for for Manitoba, we didn't get Ghost in the Shell until 2 a.m. Yeah, because you're in a really awkward time, uh, cause time zone. Because it was a really, it was a really weird place. Like, for some reason, we always got, uh, I guess we got the the West Coast feed, um, unless you had like cable, the cable box, and then you could get both the Toronto feed and the BC feed. Mm-hmm. But it, so like, whenever we wanted to watch Ghost in the Shell, it was always at like 2 a.m. And I just, I'm, I'm struck with the memory that like I would stay. Up until like 11 a.m. every 11 p.m. every Friday, to start watching the Bionics. I think that's kind of part of what made Ghost in the Shell really interesting was the fact that like I had to stay up super late to actually end up watching it and and engaging with it, and it felt like this weird underground thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm pretty I'm pretty spoiled here in BC because everything I get is either at the same time as in Eastern Standard Time mm-hmm. or earlier. So. You know, it's like on Adult Swim Canada now, if something runs at midnight, I can watch it at 9 p.m., which uh, is convenient because I go to bed much earlier these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, definitely an interesting um, highlight on uh, in, in, in YTV's overall offerings of anime over the years. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. again, too bad it didn't work out, you know, a little differently. Um, but yeah, that said, uh, you know, we both recently rewatched the show. Uh, going back, what like did anything stick out to you, uh, in your sort of sort of revisiting of it? Uh, apart from what I what I said before about like it, it looking like a little bit stiffer, but still pretty pretty relevant to like what we get now. Um, it was it, it was interesting how like the show just kind of lets itself go at a slow pace, lets itself be like a, a, a good police procedural. I thought that was really interesting. Over and like the Laughing Man stuff, like. The fact that, like, this really, like, how influential the Laughing Man symbol became at the time and how it's, like, really a story about, like, like hiding medical information, I found that really interesting. Especially, what like, I found interesting, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it, it, in the whole, um, the, the sh- going back to, like, the show being more about contemporary issues than getting too in-depth with bigger ideas or or, uh, or the technology aspects i was this show had a lot of i was really interested by how much focus this show put on narcotics control um Mm -hmm. and its relation to the pharmaceutical industry uh that was actually that criticism seemed to be more prominent than anything it had to say 
about technology, but it inter it intersects in a really intelligent way. And I, I found it interesting. Like this show is like very negative about um, the way drug control wor- works in general, especially in Japan. How like the like the, the narc squad, like they're they're just these like crude hitmen. Mm-hmm. I, I found that that was quite a statement. Um, yeah, <laughs> for, for it to make that I found surprising, especially um, in the context of other things in the show. But uh, yeah, that that really struck out to me too in the um, in the rewatch. And I, I do say mm-hmm. I, I will also say the complex episodes uh, are all very good. Um, the standalone episodes, most of them, honestly, on revisiting them, weren't really that great. Or at the, at the very least, the if they had anything to say, it was usually something mildly interesting at best. Yeah, like, there was, like, one or two that I like. I like Jungle Cruise. Jungle, yeah. Uh, I, Jungle and, Cruise, I would say, is probably the best one that is not focused on the Tachikomas. I think so. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, the Tachikomas, uh, they had a really good episode, I thought, that was, like, that, that was one of the standalone ones. That that tied in overall with the whole series, but, like, that Tachikoma episode was really good. Yeah, too. the, ta- the ta- Tachikomas are so great. Uh, they they embody everything that the movie lacked, and they're 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 like they're really cute, they're really funny, but they all they never they never really drag the seriousness of the show down. They can stay funny and cute even in like the most intense moments, and it you know it just feels natural and um and and mm-hmm. consistent, and it's really good. And those tachikomatic days sequences that they run at the end of. Um, each episode instead of the next episode preview. Say so the show is so much better when you have that uh, those uh, those bits at the end. They uh, yeah, they, they're so funny and they add so much, especially in the latter part of the series where mm-hmm. the Tachikomas aren't aren't there anymore and have been taken away. Um, yeah, they they add so much so much little bit of flavor at the end, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Why can we hat like why can we cut an ad for standalone complex? I think they only I only saw it run a couple of times. But they actually used footage of the Tachikomatic days. Um, makes me kind of wish that maybe they had just compiled them as a special or something. That would have been yeah. That would have been fun, but they probably weren't able to do that. Yeah, I, I started on my rewatch without them, and then I was like, "What am I doing?" And I, I, I spliced them in, and I, I watched them after each episode. Yeah, and they're they're great. They're so they're they're so cute. Yeah, it's, it's so good. Um, yeah, for other standalone episodes, I did like the uh, the one about the revolutionary leader and the ghost dubbing. That was uh, that was pretty interesting uh, yes. and, and and well written. And the uh, the human trafficking episode, I thought was mm-hmm. uh, was another good one. Most of them, I'm just like, this is, this is okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I want to get back to the main story, please. And and that's another thing is that the the balance of the show is not very good. You have a bunch of the complex episodes mixed in with the standalone episodes early on and then there's yeah. this big stretch where it's just only standalone episodes for the middle of the show and then it's all complex episodes at the end yeah and i feel that's it feels a little off balance i think they they've it, it would have been nice if they had found a way to balance it a little better uh, given especially yeah. given how much time it took for them to compile all these um scripts together and mm. uh, if i recall the second season handles the balance part of it a little better i think so yeah, yeah. One little-known fact, I think this is this has kind of disappeared now, but there were compilation OVAs uh, for mm. both seasons of Standalone Complex. And what's funny is that um, these compilation these compilation OVAs are not very good. They they don't add anything. Um, they cut out key plot details because they only focus on the the main complex storylines of each season. 
um, they crop everything to a different aspect ratio, which is very noticeable and unnecessary. In Japan, obviously, they could just keep the dialogue in the episode, in the uh, the footage that they splice together. But obviously, you can't. Res- it's a lot of work to restore that properly when you're working with the English dub. So Bandai Entertainment, um, when they released those compilations, uh, they opted to redub it. But to save money, and this was back in the good old days when uh, you could send something to Ocean Studios in order to save money, they actually had Ocean Studios produce their own dub for these compilation OVAs. Um, you, you can actually find it on archive.org right now. That's how kind of lost media um, this is. Okay, so not act, I wouldn't say it's actual lost media, but that's how sort of forgotten this is, that they could just upload it to archive.org. It's a, it's an historical artifact. Um, and I got to say, it is weird watching these things. I, ch- I checked out a little bit of the first compilation film. It is so strange to hear these voices coming out of these characters, uh, these established ocean voice actors. Um, Allison Matthew, who's Forte Stolen from... Uh, from Galaxy Angel. She does the voice of Motoko Kusanagi. Um, she's okay. She does a fair... They're, they're all voice matches. She does a pretty good job. You could you could almost be fooled into thinking that it is Mary Elizabeth McGlynn uh, mm-hmm. doing that voice. Uh, Russell Roberts, who... An actor, I don't think I've heard him in anything else. Um, he does Aramaki. He does a, he does a pretty convincing um, uh, imitation of William Frederick, uh, who's, the, who's, the, uh, who's always been the English voice for, for Aramaki and I think basically everything. But man, when you get to those other characters, it, uh, David K. Yeah. David K. is the voice of Bateau, and it it sounds wrong. You have this very yeah. distinct, prominent voice actor replacing Richard Epcar, another very distinct, prominent voice actor who's impossible to imitate. And you you yeah, my bro- my brain yeah. can't process it. <laughs> yeah, same with Togusa. Uh, I I I only spot checked it. Because uh, you told me about it, and I was like, oh, I gotta like at least see the, a little bit of this. Uh, Togusa, his replacement was really different, but like, you yeah, Trevor Duvall really is Togusa re- in this. Yeah, like, like it's hard to replace Christian, Christian Freeman, frankly, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, and, he's just yeah. this guy you hear in every dub, and that, yeah. that's the thing about the standalone complex stuff. They had like the top talent working on this at the time. They're not the the only um, the only actors who came from the movie were William Frederick and and Richard, Richard Epcar. Uh, everyone else was um, replaced, but I mean they're all great. They're all memorable. If you've watched even ten anime dubs in the last decade, you have heard these voices for sh- for sure, guaranteed in something. Um, yeah, and like the, like the dub is top notch. It's yeah. probably one of the best dubs uh, still to this day. Yeah, I mean if I if I if I'm taking a close ear to it, I can pick out some lines that maybe sound kind of weird or awkward, but. That's just nitpicking. It is a yeah. it is a top shelf production for sure. Mm-hmm. So to see Ocean Studios just do this kind of okay, okayish imitation mm-hmm. of the same script, it's it's kind of uncanny actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, just like like David David K is Batoed, Trevor Duvall is Togusa. It um it it just makes everything sound so off and so bizarre. If you want to listen to something, if you're listen, if you're used to the um, the TV series and want to listen to something that's a little uh, bizarre and unnerving, uh, check out this dub because it's um <laughs> it's it's something for sure. Yeah, uh, I, I, thought, I agree. It's a little un- it's a little uncanny valley almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kathy. Uh, worth noting, Kathy Westluck and Tabitha Saint Germain uh, do the Tachikomas in this. They're actually great. They do a 
they they definitely nail uh, Tachikoma voices, even though they're different than what was in the original series. But they're um, you know they're 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 two of the best people to do those kinds of voices, so it works out pretty well. Um, that said, where the hell can you watch Ghost in the Shell standalone complex now? Uh, so for a high profile series, um, there are definitely options you can find for like a home video release, but anything else, um, it's, it's not in the obvious places you would expect to find it. No. Yeah. Uh, I had this problem when I was trying to find it to, to rewatch it. Uh, I was like, I use just watch. I was like, Oh, where is it at? And it turns out it's just on Hoopla right now. So you, so for streaming, uh, yeah. It is not streaming in Canada at all. You cannot find it on any streaming service. Well, to add insult to injury, if you go to Crave, they have, of, of course, if you have the Stars add-on on Crave, you can watch the original Ghost in the Shell film. They also added the Ghost in the Shell 2.0, which is a really very bad uh, reversioning of the original film. But the funny thing is, if you go on Crave, if you go to the ghost in the the page for ghost in the shell 2.0 the splash image in the background is a screenshot from standalone complex it's like stars is taunting us showing us yes we have this we could put this on crave if we wanted to but we don't want to you're getting this Mm -hmm. crappy reversioning of the original movie instead i'm just like god damn it put put it on crave just it seems that stars just puts random titles uh on with their partnership on on crave every once in a while and, you know, it seems like it's possible. Maybe one day Standalone Complex will be one of those random titles that they just kind of drop on there. Yeah. Um, and I keep hoping that might happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. I, so I actually am looking at Hoopla right now. Yeah. And Standalone Complex is available, but Hoopla is a streaming service that you can only access if you have a library card. Yes, exactly. Uh, but they have – and I can't tell because uh, my library card is currently – uh, out of date, so I haven't renewed it yet. I can't tell if you need to borrow each episode individually or if you can borrow a season all at once. But you might only be able to borrow each episode individually, which would mean that if you wanted to watch the entire series, it would probably take you a number of months to actually get through it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's an option, but not necessarily a great one. Not a good um, one. It, you know what? Both seasons were on Plex a few months ago, earlier this year but they literally could not have been on more than three months because I noticed them uh, one week, and then a few weeks later, I couldn't find them again, uh, which, <laughs> which was really annoying. And they, they, you know, they had the HD Masters and everything on there. I'm just like, no, how, how did you let that happen? You had such a valuable content there. I mean, no, nobody would ever think to look, to look for them on Plex, but they <laughs> yeah. were there. Um, and, of course, I think... Um, I think the streaming situation in the States is a little precarious as well. I, I heard that Stars had it on their service. I don't think it's on their dedicated service anymore. It's uh, I'm not I'm not quite sure, but you can at, at the very least it is on Adult Swim's website in the States. So even if you can't find it anywhere else, you you can always know that you'll be able to find it there. Um, outside of that, uh, you can actually buy you can buy it digitally which might be the best option. I, th- I think it's on both Google and um, and Apple. But you can also get it on Steam. You can buy the season sets for like 25 bucks huh. on Steam. And I know that the Steam version is bilingual, so that might actually be the best option to get it. <laughs> but uh, 
I, I, I know it's, it seems weird to buy, spend $25 to buy a season of anime on Steam of all places, but it's there. <laughs> I can't think of anything else you could buy that way on Steam, but it, it, it is there. I checked. It's the weirdest thing. Gee, that's that's bizarre. Yeah, but yeah, I hope um, I hope someone can get this streaming in Canada eventually because I think a lot of people will probably want to go back and and revisit this show, especially you, you know, like I mentioned, the twenty forty nine sequel is on Netflix right now. It makes me kind of surprised yeah. that no one is going for it. Yeah, me too. You think you think with with that release, someone would take it, and like even when the American movie came out, yeah, there exactly. wasn't really a good way to get standalone complex. I, I think that the Blu-ray release came out around that time, and then it was and then it was so bad that they actually just pulled it from the market and then never re-released a better version. Yeah, so sad. Uh, it is uh, it is unfortunate that what was once such a high-profile show has sort of um, uh, met this very bad treatment. <laughs> yeah, or, uh, or, or very dodgy um, availability in this day and age. But. Yeah, it's, it's it that happens to a lot of these high profile releases that get released by like a mainstream company. Like yeah. lots of them often just fall away and then are forgotten because there's not a good way to watch them anymore. I mean, also look at the Cowboy Bebop movie that used to be everywhere, but now mm-hmm. there seems to be some Funimation had a release they put out, but they that's been out of print, and now there it seems to be in some like rights hellhole. Like, it's mm-hmm. on Netflix, and it seems to be the TriStar Pictures release version, uh, but it's only in Canada and South Korea. There is um, there's there's something strange going on there. We're, we're definitely paying yeah. a long-term price for, for shows that had wide distribution from larger companies back in the day. Yeah. Um, but at least we got to enjoy them then. At least they had an impact then. And um, <laughs> I hope things get a little better with that moving forward. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much everything I've got to say about this. Uh, did you want to add anything else before we wrap up, Randy? I, I think that Ghost in the Shell was was really good. It, it was pretty important to be on TV. It gave Bionics like an air of, of legitimacy more than more than the, the basic shows from before I'd already done. Yeah, definitely a prestige uh, title. Yeah. Yeah. So and like it it just overall kind of gave the the block a lot a lot more substance, I think overall. Yeah. It's it was always good knowing that it was you know, for a couple years, it was always there. You could always find it late at night, and it was still still chugging along, still getting um, a lot of viewership. Because you you mm-hmm. couldn't always we didn't know what the ratings were for any of the shows on Bionics, but you could tell you know when a show was scheduled, how long they kept rerunning it for. You got a good idea of how um, of how well it did. Um, just yeah. too bad we never got that second season in um, mm-hmm. in a broadcast. That was uh, yeah. That's uh, definitely a disappointment. So, so Randy, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me again. Where can uh, people find you online? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter. I'm at ChandyRam, uh, basically Randy Chan with the first uh, syllable replaced. Uh, and uh, you can catch me theoretically at an anime convention at Icon uh, in Winnipeg in the summertime, hopefully summer 2022. Fingers crossed. So yeah, thanks for tuning into Zon in Canada. You can reach me on Twitter at jbetteridge or email zonincanada at gmail.com. The theme song is by Ultraclystron and can be found on his album Packet Flood. And you can find that at ultraclystron.com. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you know anyone who might be interested in this show, please recommend it to them. See you again.
I'm human.